for us, income inequality is still one of the major problems of the Israeli economy. It translates into inequality in schooling, and inequality in schooling uh, translates into problems of institutions of democracy. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Ruben Gronau, who is Professor of Economics Emeritus at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He is renowned for his work in labor economics, and especially for his study of the value of time in many applications of economics, as well as for his role in economic policy in Israel. Ruben, welcome to The Work Goes On. Thank you very much. It's so great to have you here. Let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Tel Aviv, Israel, Palestine at the time. My parents were uh, born in Germany in the early years of the last century. They left Germany by '33 when Hitler uh, came to power and uh, moved via Romania, where my father worked for a year or two, to Israel. In a way, it was my mother's idea uh, to go back to Palestine. Uh, my father was a non-Zionist. He would have ended up in the United States, and may have um, I may have ended up somewhere near Princeton. <laughs> uh, his cousins uh, ended up in Buenos Aires in New York. We grew up in Israel. Israel at the time was a, a mandate of the British uh, Empire. I grew up in Tel Aviv, but during the war, me and my brother and mother left Tel Aviv because it was bombed by the Italians. So we went to the countryside. We came back by 43, 44, and uh, I went through the Israeli uh, educational system it was usual that we all enlisted in the army. I served as a youth instructor in with army uh, uniform in the southern part of Israel, where mostly with new immigrants. And in uh, 56, 55, I went to the university. Yeah, that's so interesting. I I wasn't aware of your fact that your 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 parents were uh, from Germany originally, and and of course, this left in 1933. We all know what happened at that point. Hitler Hitler came to power, and everything went downhill for many people. I'm curious though, how did they manage to get from Germany to to Palestine? Well, my father was relatively well-to-do, and uh, the British government, mandatory government at the time, had uh, immigration permits for people with means. 
So I assume they came on this type of a certificate. My mother came in 635. My father joined her in 636 or so, and uh, they lived in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv was established in 1905, but was relatively new city. In other words, I would walk through sand to the beach. <laughs> this was a 20-minute walk, but part of the road was still sandy. So, and I would, the place where I lived was encircled by citrus groves, by wine yards, and so forth. And I would, where I played football at the time, or soccer at the time, is now the municipality. So you can imagine this is a completely different type of use than American used to have. Your parents were then have been German speakers, I guess, and you were brought up in, in Israel, I assume, speaking Hebrew. Yeah, definitely. My parents uh, spoke German throughout their life, and I would the whole community was German-speaking. My mother would buy her groceries from a German-speaking grocery seller. Uh, she would go to butcheries, the butcher, she would communicate with the butcher in German. I had a brother and a sister, and my mother started talking Hebrew only once my sister married, and she married a non-German-speaking a boy, so my mother had to use Hebrew for with, for communication with him. My father, who was in the business community, of course, knew Hebrew, but speak spoke Hebrew with a very heavy German accent, and I was slightly ashamed of his accent. <laughs> and I, would, I still maintain my accent in English, at least. <laughs> But uh, this was very odd. Now, I know you went to the, uh, you ended up as a professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And I guess you went to school there too. At the time, there was no choice. There was one university in Israel. Uh, the university was established early in the 20th century. It was established by people like Einstein, Weizmann, and uh, people of that status, as you know, United States uh, gained a lot from immigration, from, from Jewish immigration, of physicians, of uh, physics professors, physics experts, even economic experts who moved from Germany uh, to the United States. It's a similar uh, phenomena. Occurred in Israel, and that the university was established mostly by German speaking or German or people who left Germany to settle in Israel. That's that's, that's very interesting. You're right. It, teachers of mine, in fact, and we've had other people on this podcast who had instructors who had come from uh, from Germany. Well, how in the world did you end up at Columbia University? As I said, I studied economics. Economics was quite novel in Israel, or at least American economics was novel in Israel uh, because we, economics, as was known prior to 1949, was European economics. And that was more of a social science like sociology, maybe political science of the time. It was sort of storytelling. Uh, Don Patinkin, who uh, moved to Israel 
in 1949 is credited, rightly so, as the father of modern economics in Israel. He became a professor at the Hebrew U, and he introduced Chicagoan uh, economics into Israel, and market economics, uh, formal economics. And uh, I came to the university in 55. We didn't know what economics was all about. Uh, <laughs> my best friend was Yoram Ben-Parat, whom uh, you know, who was also a great innovator in labor economics. He, his brother was in economics and told us that it's a quite interesting field. So we moved into economics. There was not the data to calculate the rate of return on education. <laughs> no, definitely not economic education at, uh, at the time. Patinkin moved to Israel. Where did he come from? Patinkin was born in Chicago. Uh, he was uh, essentially a yeshiva bocher. Uh, he hesitated uh, whether he should take religious studies at a yeshiva, which is a, a religious Jewish school, or whether he should go to the university, he ended up at the university, was one of Friedman's students. Uh, he finished his uh, dissertation, I think, with uh, Hayek and uh, a the old-time Chicago school. And then after teaching at Chicago and Illinois, he moved to Israel. That's interesting. I wasn't aware that he was an American. I guess I should have been. Did he teach you? Yeah, definitely. He taught us as a graduate student. Now, we studied three years as undergraduates, and uh, I didn't have the uh, opportunity to study with him. But then I studied for another two years in the graduate school for an MA degree. And there he was a teacher in macroeconomics and monetary economics. I know you did your PhD at Columbia at a period when Columbia had this remarkable uh, group of people in labor economics. How did you come to be go to New York and Columbia? Uh, I was actually very fortunate because labor economics at the time was at its early phases. In Jerusalem, hardly anyone knew what labor economics was all about. Uh, the only person perhaps who knew what uh, labor economics is about was a person by the name of Judah Greenfeld, who uh, studied in uh, Chicago later came to Israel and died at a relatively young age. But he was our teacher, and he told Yoram Ben-Parat uh, about labor economics. Actually, one of my, my MA thesis was the rate of return in teacher salaries <laughs> in Israel. So I knew something about labor economics, and Greenfeld told Yoram that uh, Columbia is quite a good place. There are two young people there by the name of Becker and Minzer who are worth uh, listening to. And uh, I didn't come to study labor economics, but I ended, of course, with uh, uh, Gary and with Jacob. Yes, and it was a, it was a hotbed of uh, many people were at Columbia around that time. 
after you, of course, but uh, including many students. I actually had the pleasure of replacing Jacob Minster one, one semester when he was on leave and teaching some of the students there. It was always a, it was quite a pleasure to do that. So your dissertation, I know, was about the value of time and its role in transportation. Is that, is that what your PhD thesis was? Yeah, actually, the role of luck uh, played a major role in this uh, thesis. Uh, when I came to Colombia, uh, Jacob and Gary were on sabbatical, and but I met them at the introduction party. And uh, I talked to Jacob. Jacob suggested I'll be his, his TA in statistics the following year. And he introduced me to Gary. And when I came to, to Gary to the National Bureau, he gave me a paper and told me to read it. It may be quite interesting. And that was a paper, an early version of the paper on uh, the allocation of time. So he asked me whether I'd like to write a dissertation, my PhD dissertation on topic. And I told him I'd like to do so because you read it, it was mind boggling. It was completely new in economics to think of time as a real constraint on your activities. So, so later, and I told him, studying with Jacob, I'd like to do a mix, mixture of theory and empirical work and the only place I could find uh, empirical data on the usage of time was in the field of transportation <laughs> because there were no time uh, budget surveys in the United States. The only ones that had been before were the time of the Great Recession. So uh, he told me uh, that I couldn't do it because there is already somebody who is plans to write a dissertation on that topic. So I was looking around another month or so, and then Gary called me and told me that I could do it because the guy who wanted to do it decided to go to Wall Street. <laughs> now, the guy who went to Wall Street ended up to become a millionaire, <laughs> and I became a poor teacher of <laughs> economics. So it's not clear who did the right, made the right decision, I guess. Let me only add, in other words, when I finished the dissertation, Gary suggested I'd go for uh, the summer vacation to Washington because the Council of Economic Advisors was just uh, studying the feasibility and profitability of the SST. The airline companies were pressuring the government to uh, invest in research and a prototype of an SST namely a supersonic transport plane. And uh, I went there. My estimate showed that the value of time was for business travelers was equal to the uh, wage rate, but for people traveling on their own means and for pleasure was only a third of their value of their wages. And uh, adopting these estimates the government decided that it should not invest in the SST, which was the right decision because the 
European SST turned out to be one of the largest flops of the airline industry. Now, did you work at the Council of Economic Advisors? Yeah, for three months, for the summer period, or two months. Really? Who, who were the... Do you remember who you worked for? No, I couldn't remember the name. I, I wasn't aware that you had worked at the at the council. Uh, there are other people that have done that too, that uh, a lot of times it's not so clear that that's happened. This paper was... I guess it was quite influential in many ways. Uh, I know that uh, the, the 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 point that saving time uh, is what the quality of travel is about became sort of integral to everything that's done uh, in in that whole field. So you were obviously very important in that way. You also uh, had a, a very good luck. And in fact, we I had a weird podcast last week with Jim Heckman. And he was very flattering about your work on selection bias in labor force uh, behavior of of married women. How did you come to do that? When I came back to Israel, I decided I'm going to do a study on the labor force participation of women, which at the time in Israel was a topic which has never been touched upon. And I started working on it. And then I decided instead of using looking at the participation, I'll try to impute the value of time of women in making the decision whether to work or uh, to stay at home. So I studied that field and I decided, and I had, of course, all the time to use the wage data of women, but I realized that the wage data is in a way a bias estimate because the day, the <laughs> distribution is truncated. You don't see the a part of the distribution for those women who decide to stay at home. So going back to the problem of the truncated distribution, I worked it out. Uh, I was able only to work it out for a binomial a distribution where R, the correlation, is equal to zero. And I sent it to the JPE and turned out that Greg Lewis had worked out the same problem before, but published a paper in some remote uh, Spanish uh, South American uh, journal, but he still approved my paper. Uh, of course, Jim saw it or worked it out himself, and he worked out the more complicated uh, problem and got his prize for it. The Nobel Prize. Uh, you know, we've moved along quite a ways in this podcast, and I, I do want to turn to another topic that many people are probably not going to be aware of, uh, and that's the role that you've played in Israel in economic policy. I, I wasn't aware until I started looking at at what you had done, that you had been on the Monetary Policy Committee. I know Israel has a system like the British uh, do now, where uh, the Monetary Policy Committee sets the interest rates, I guess, and there are three uh, permanent members who come from the bank, and then there are three others that come from the public. So you did this for a number of years. What was that like? That was a fascinating period of my life. This was, of course, the end of my career because uh, we have an obligatory retirement age of 67. 
and uh, I retired already at the age of uh, 65 from teaching. This was a normal continuation of my activity in um, public in the public sphere. As you may remember, I was uh, early 1990. I was at Princeton for sabbatical. I was working on uh, some remote problem of the R square when you have a, a binary data. And uh, at some point, I received a phone call asking me to serve on a committee uh, setting phone uh, rates. Uh, I told the person who called me, who was a member uh, of the budgetary committee in Israel, that or budgetary office in Israel, I told them that I'd be ready to serve on the committee if I'm a chairman. Uh, I was already on another committee before, so I had the experience of uh, regulatory committees. And uh, since then, I spent most of my time on uh, policy-making committees, setting water rates, electricity rates, and so forth. At some point... uh, in uh, around the year 2011, my friend Stan Fisher, who was a governor of the Bank of Israel, asked me whether I'd be ready to uh, join the council. I was came, of course, from a completely different background than the rest of the members. They were all macroeconomists, and I brought the microeconomic angle but it was a fascinating period of 10 years. It was the end of sort of the inflation period or in Israel, going through the 2008, successfully through the 2008 crisis. Uh, And then suddenly we hit a period with very low inflation. The question was whether we should uh, lower our interest rate or stay uh, with normal rates. The committee decided to lower its rate. I thought at the time, and I think now, it lowered them too much and stayed with low interest rates for too long. But I'm sure there are other people in the United States who think likely about uh, the Fed policy. Uh, And now, of course, we are uh, running uh, through inflation, which is perhaps modest compared with the United States, but well beyond the bounds, and uh, face very high interest rates. That's absolutely fascinating. I knew that I read your paper on the deregulation of the phone system in Israel, uh, and I guess you were involved in doing that. And, and it was a period, I, a lot of people have forgotten this, but there was a time when there were no such, there was no such thing as a cell phone, really. And then there, where landlines were the common way to have a phone. Uh, and then at some point, suddenly cell phones started to grow. And I guess in some ways displace landlines. Many people no longer have landlines. What, how did you get involved in that? Well, as I told you, when I was at Princeton, somebody called me from the Ministry of Budget 
he knew that I was in previous committees of both of phone rates and electricity rates, and he knew that I am able to read numbers, which is very important when you want to set prices to be able to, uh, even if it's not an econometric study, but to be able to uh, calculate the cost of the company because you want to balance the good of the uh, customers with the well-being of the company. And uh, we were able to lower the rates because the companies in Israel were always government-held and were always uh, monopolies. So usually worked for the workers because the workers were enjoying very high wages, well above the wage they could make in the private sector, and the customers paid the price. It's price setting, for example, for cell phones was a, a fascinating field because I don't remember. I think the same thing happened also in the United States. The cell phone rates distinguish between incoming calls and outgoing calls. And they priced incoming calls much higher than outgoing calls. Now, with incoming calls, the person who owns the phone has no interest what the other guy is paying. He is interested only in the price of outgoing calls. So the companies definitely differentiated between the two, establishing very high prices for incoming calls and low prices for outgoing calls. Now, this was a system also in international calls. Like when in the early 90s, when I was at the committee for uh, the fixed phones, we discovered that in international calls, the incoming calls in Israel were priced at a much higher price than outgoing calls because incoming calls came from the United <laughs> States. And as you know, Americans are very rich people. <laughs> Israelis are poor people. So the incoming calls subsidized the whole phone system. And when you go into this field, you realize that unless you set the price of incoming calls at a very low price, preferably nil, you can't get competition. And it's only when we set the rates of the incoming calls at a very low price that we were able to get competition in the cell phone industry, which is now priced at very low prices in Israel compared with the United States, and that affected also the fixed phones. I just want to add one thing. If you haven't learned it, economics is a fascinating field, <laughs> yep. even when you, you practice it. Uh, yes, exactly. Well, it sounds like you, you – I'm so glad we could talk about this because it sounds like you have actually practiced it. I just have one last question I want to ask you. You've lived in Israel all your life, born there uh, fr from the time that it was Palestine and a British, uh, British colony to the current time uh, when it's uh, a highly developed country. I'm curious, how do you feel about the way the economy has evolved over that period? Is there, is there a lesson in that? The lesson that I can derive from it 
is the effect of growth on income inequality. As you become richer, I think inequality rises. And unless the government intervenes, you'll find a lot of relatively poor people, some middle-class people, and very few rich people. I don't have to tell you this lesson, since you observe the data in the United States, we grew up in a semi-socialistic environment. So for us, income inequality is still one of the major problems of the Israeli economy. It translates into inequality in schooling, and inequality in schooling uh, translates into problems of institutions of democracy, and as you know, this is the main topic that we are addressing these days. That's a, a very provocative set of comments, too. Thank you so much, Ruben. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Our guest today has been Ruben Gronau, Professor of Economics Emeritus at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. When we will speak with John Pincavel, the Levin Professor of Economics Emeritus at Stanford University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.